Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. So I was talking to the physicist Michael Turner a couple of months ago. You might have heard that conversation on the show. And we were discussing some of the big unsolved questions in cosmology. You know, dark matter, dark energy, the origins of the universe, or multiverse, take your pick. When he said... Actually, one of my favorite quotes is that to solve really big problems, you need crazy ideas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I know your listeners can get my email address, so I I also want to point out... (laughs) Not every crazy idea is a solution to a profound problem. Most of them are just crazy. (laughs) Oh, my God. We could do a whole other interview about some of the alternative theories, shall we say, that you probably had to entertain uh, through your email and uh, phone. Yeah, I may have laughed, but I wasn't really joking. It is something I am genuinely curious about. As I think uh, just about every physicist has experienced, there are a lot of folks out there formulating their own offbeat explanations of the universe, and often sending them to guys like Michael Turner. And I have long wondered about these amateur theorists. I mean, who are they? What drives them? And why do they discount so much of modern physics with all of its amazing successes and prefer to spend countless hours crafting their own home-brewed treatises? Is it a kind of science that they're doing, or is it something else? And of course, remember that a lot of the greatest physics breakthroughs in history were the results of lone individuals thinking thoughts that were considered borderline crazy by the establishment of the time. So where is this line between legit science and pseudoscience? Well, those are just some of the questions I was pondering when I happened across this book called Physics on the Fringe, Smoke Rings, Circlons, and Alternative Theories of Everything. It's by the science writer Margaret Wertheim, and it takes up exactly the kinds of issues I was mulling over. It's about the sort of people who are sometimes dismissed as crackpots or cranks, but who Margaret Wertheim calls outsider physicists. And she says that while they may not be correct scientifically speaking, they do have a lot to tell us about our current relationship to science. In the hour ahead, we are going to explore the world of non-mainstream physics with Margaret Wertheim. And it's a world she says she got drawn into kind of by accident. I started to get sent these theories as when I was a science journalist. You know, I'd write an article for a newspaper or magazine and someone would send me their idea about the true theory of the universe. And a lot of science journalists get sent this stuff and a lot of physicists get sent this stuff. And usually it goes straight into the bin. But I kept it. I kept it on my shelves and sort of was amused by it. And after a while I thought, you know, there's quite a bit of it going on out there it seems. Um... Maybe I'll write an article about this. And then I encountered one man, particularly a man named Jim Carter, who I think of as the outsider, sorry, the Leonardo of outsider physics. And um, I became really fascinated with Jim's work and with the totality of his physics in the context of a really remarkable life. And I ultimately ended up deciding I wanted to write a book about him, which would illuminate the whole field and therefore give me a sort of opening to reflect on the social and psychological Um, as it were, motivations going on behind this phenomenon. Were you at all worried when you took this on that you would be deluged with very needy people uh, who, you know, wanted you to legitimate, read and legitimate their lengthy manuscripts, and that you'd sort of go down a rabbit hole? I wasn't worried about that when I started, (laughs) uh, but I am concerned about it now. (laughs) Um, You know, when I started, these theories just kind of trickled in, you know, in a very random fashion. 
But now that the book is out, I am being deluged with these people. And they all do want, you know, they're all intense and earnest and extremely convinced that they have the true and final answer that's really necessary for the history of humanity that the rest of us know about right now. And um, they very much want my attention, my validation. I think what most of them want is for me to become their disciples, to drop everything that I'm doing and... um, at the very minimal, write my next book about them, but certainly devote a great deal of attention. And and it's quite the dilemma for an author to find themselves in. What do you do about this? Yeah. I mean, you put your foot in it, for sure, by taking this on and by writing the book. Yes, and, and it's quite a difficult experience, really, because what these people want more than anything is to be given mainstream validation. And actually, one of the difficult things about since the book's come out is that there is an organization of these people. It's an international organization called the Natural Philosophy Alliance. And the weekend after next, in fact, they will hold their annual conference. They hold a big annual conference each year now. Um, it'll be in Albuquerque, New Mexico this year. And um, many of the people who run the organization are very angry at my book because they see clearly that my book does not say that any of them are going to win the Nobel Prize. (laughs) And they think that in some sense I am not taking them seriously because I say that. But I am taking them very seriously. I just don't think that any one of them (laughs) is likely to ever be validated by the mainstream. Yeah, and I want to make it clear for our audience that your book is very respectful. It does not make fun of outsider scientists, as you call them. Uh, It does not dismiss them as crazy. Many of them are quite bright, and Jim Carter, who's sort of your hero, um, is obviously a very talented, gifted individual in many ways. Uh, you're not making fun of these folks. You don't like the words crackpot, crank, or kook, and so on. On the other hand, you're not conferring on them scientific legitimacy, and how could you? What strikes me about that desire uh, of theirs to get validation from the Academy is that their theories typically reject everything, or virtually everything, that the institution of science and physics has produced over the last hundred years or so. And they don't stand on the shoulders of giants. They, they sort of you know, push the giant aside and say, I'm here. <laughs> so, they, so they reject the whole edifice on which other scientists are, are carefully building, block by block, this construction. And yet they're saying, now recognize me. That's such a strangely conflicted impulse, I think. It, it is. I mean, I have definitely thought about that, that it's very schizophrenic on the one hand. Um, you know, on the one hand, they're saying everything you guys are saying is wrong, yet, on the other hand, they're saying <laughs> desperately, we want you guys to validate us. Well, why? I mean, if you really think that all that they're doing is wrong, why on earth do you want their validation? Why do you care? Why not just say for, you know, legitimate each other? Um, and I think that is that is this sort of, as it were, almost childish side of this phenomena that it's like the rejection, the kind of, you know, Oedipal rejection of the parent, but at the same time you desperately want the parent's love and validation. But it, it, it is also the nonsensical thing because if you're rejecting, you know, the last 500 years of mainstream science, which most of them are doing, well, at least the last 200 years, because they recognize Newton on the whole, but they don't (laughs) recognize anything that's gone on since Faraday and the invention of field theory. Um, If you're rejecting the last 200 years of physics, on which all really contemporary physics is built, um, 
why should these insiders pay attention to you? Now, they say the answer is because they found the truth. They found the true theory of reality, and that matters. And, you know, here we are in the same you know, week that the Higgs boson has been announced. You know, the most, the most important announcement in or discovery in particle physics in the last 30 or 40 years that physicists believe they finally found one of the most true, important true entities um, in the pantheon of science. And there's no application for it. There's no, um, you know, likely to be any technological spin-offs of this discovery. It's just here we have a little gem of what physicists believe is the ultimate quintessential truth. And the outsiders would say the same thing. Look, you should pay attention to us because we are going to deliver more of the truth than you guys. So what interests me with this phenomena is how does our society assess and judge what is the truth and which, as it were, claims to truth we're even going to begin to explore. And of course that means in contemporary society that means which ones are we going to give research dollars to even setting out to explore because it takes a lot of money to do theoretical um, to, to verify theoretical physics with experiments these days. Can you give me a, a little list, Margaret, uh, an abbreviated list of the sorts of theories that you have there in your growing collection of outsider uh, science work? Probably the main category of theories that outsider physicists have is what um, is called ether theories. Now, these are theories that essentially hark back to the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. Up until about the mid-19th century, most physicists, including all the really famous ones, people like um, Isaac Newton, um, believed the universe was pervaded by a superfine substance that was called the ether. And the ether was the medium that light travelled through. So physicists knew that light was a wave. We know that you know when we have sound waves, they travel through air, or waves in water travel through water. So it was thought um, that light had to travel through a medium, and that medium was the ether. Um, it was also believed that things like gravity could travel through the ether. But in the late 19th century, physicists began to look for direct evidence of this ether, and they couldn't find it. And so ultimately, ether got rejected. But many of the physicists in the natural philosophy of lines um, this big organization of these people, do believe in ether theory. A lot of them have theories that harken back to basically the early 19th century. And the reason for that is that early 19th century is when we see the development by Michael Faraday of what is called the field, a field concept of the world. And the paradigm of that is the magnetic field. So we believe that a magnet is pervaded by a sort of invisible field of influence that causes the iron filings to, to sort of be drawn towards the magnet. And we see a similar sort of field around um, electrical coil where we see um, that the air around it appears to be influenced by positive and negative charges. And the gravitational, we, we also talk about gravitational field around the Earth. Now, these physicists primarily reject field theory. And what they want instead is a mechanical theory of the universe. A clockwork idea. <laughs> a clockwork idea. And again, the idea that we lived in a clockwork universe, some kind of mechanical description of the universe, was the mainstream view up until the late 19th century. So really what these people are doing is saying 
they're rejecting the last at least 150 years of physics and wanting to go back to a more straightforward, materialistic, um, mechanised picture of the universe. They're trying to turn back the clock on physics. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And, And one of the things that I'm interested in in my book is why are they doing this? And I think there's a very good reason, a very or very interesting reason why they're doing it. And it's because with the introduction of field theory into physics, physics became much more highly mathematical. And that happened because in order to understand how these proposed you know, invisible fields of influence acted, physicists had to start applying this much more high-powered, seemingly abstract mathematics. And what was amazing, and that happened in the late 19th century, so people like James Clerk Maxwell came up with his Maxwell's equations, which are the equations that show us how electric and magnetic fields interact. And this very arcane mathematics, you now had to be really professionally trained mathematician to understand how physics work. But what was amazing about Maxwell's equations is they made a prediction. They made a prediction about light, that they made a prediction that light was intersecting electric and magnetic fields and that it would travel at a particular speed. And that turns out to be correct. And he made a prediction that, in fact, there would be these invisible waves that we hadn't yet seen called radio waves. And again, Maxwell's prediction turned out to be correct. Using this arcane mathematics, physicists were able to discover things that they hadn't been able to discover as long as they had a sort of mechanical view of the universe. So in the late 19th century, mathematics became the predominant language of physics. And it's that association with arcane mathematics that contemporary outsiders, physicists, are rebelling against. So most of the theories that you've read take us back to a world in which things could be explained by simple sort of material interactions, uh, one thing bumping against another. <laughs> Everything was mediated by, by matter, uh, interacting with matter um, in a way that we could all visualize, and we didn't even need to apply any math to it. Uh, we could just draw a diagram, you know? Yes, m- most of these people, um, they do use some math, but on the whole it's very simple high school math. Um, some of them use a bit of calculus, but very little. So most of them, their theory is very, very mathematically simple and based in simple mechanical models. They're, they're particularly, um, their descriptions of how physics works are generally in terms of simple models that you could literally see or feel. Um, and the, the experiments of, of it that they articulate um, are, are pretty simple ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there are some wilder theories, yeah? Yes. I mean, there, there's a lot of people or quite a few people, who have alternative explanations for how matter is. Like, they reject the the usual account of the periodic table and the structure of matter. They reject the usual ideas of, you know, um, protons and neutrons and electrons. And they have their own ideas about how atoms are made up of tiny little subatomic springs, and they have very, very, often, often very, very elaborate models that they make themselves at home, which are often very beautiful about explaining the structure of matter. Um, and now this is a subject that you know physicists have been studying the structure of matter really seriously for well over a hundred years. Um, and the pictures that we've got are now, you know, they're verified to many decimal places. So when someone comes along and says, look, I've got an entirely other description of matter, um, and basically, you know, it sits in the atoms that you've always told us, the sort of three-dimensional sit in these kind of two-dimensional lattice-like. They look a little bit like 
subatomic chain male. That's a pretty hard idea for a physicist to accept, no matter how detailed your pictures are, no matter how detailed your descriptions are. It just goes against 150 years of experimental evidence. So what do you make of that as a mainstream physicist? And it becomes extremely difficult to actually have a discussion about what is the nature of truth, what constitutes evidence for one theory over another with these people. At the same time, I think one has a similar problem when one talks to a string theorist who's proposing that there are 10 or 11 dimensions of reality. And in fact, one of the things that um, I describe in my book is going to a string theory conference, the world's first string, what was called string cosmology conference, and a conference of outsider physicists, and how in many sense the feeling of these conferences was very much the same. The same in the sense that for an outsider such as yourself, one who's outside the ranks of both of these cultures, it can seem like so much mumbo-jumbo. Well, yes. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm trained as a physicist, and um, you know, I, I've written about physics for plenty of mainstream newspapers and magazines. But I'm not a practicing physicist, so I'm outside the culture in that sense, and I'm certainly not an outsider physicist. But the feeling of both of these conferences was that everybody was basically waiting for their turn at the podium to get up and say, look, Ah, look, I've got the true ah. and final theory of reality. And they'd go on for 30 minutes with their true and final (laughs) theory of reality. Everyone would clap. And then the next person would get up and say, I've got the true and final theory of reality. And everyone would clap. And during the tea break to the um, string theory conference, I would sort of ask people, well, what did you think of that talk? And they'd go, oh, it was absolutely splendid, but there was not a truth. There was not a word of truth to any of oh, them. Oh, oh, so I, I understand. I think I, I mischaracterized uh, your comparison, so I think I get it now. The thing that those two conferences had in common is that in both cases, you know, very different things are being proposed by a variety of different people, but without any absolute standard by which they could be judged. So in string theory... Though it's based on some rigorous mathematics, it results in a lot of alternative accounts that are all equally plausible within the current framework of string theory. So that, yes. in fact, you give a number. 10 to the power of 500. Yes, the number of possible string theories. Given, given the number of uh, dimensions and the number of ways in which um, various elements of the theory can be combined, uh, you could have 10 to the 500th power different versions of a string theory universe, right? Is that is that a good way of putting it? Yes, that's correct. Oh, my God. And so part of the problem that we have is, <laughs> even if we do find some evidence for string theory, which version of the theory is it evidence for? <laughs> and that's no simple question. Uh, the, one, one big difference, though, is <laughs> uh, between the, the two cultures, obviously, is that the outsider um, physicists, the outsider scientists, uh, what some people call crackpots, don't seem to be bound at all to previous work or to, uh, you know, a a very, very large and established body of agreed-upon data and so on. They just sort of take off in their own direction and go wild, whereas even string theorists are building their ideas on a very, very firm ground, which is mathematics. I mean, they're using very powerful mathematics, and that's leading them to this what seems like wide open <laughs> set of ideas. I mean, there is a there's a there's a real discipline to what they're doing, uh, yes. and they've subjected themselves to the terms of, of their field. Whereas yes. the outsider guys just want to do their own thing. It sounds like. I mean, there's a rugged independence about them. There's a you know extreme individualism about them. There's a I can do it all myself and invent it from scratch 
ethos. Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, the string theorists exist in, as it were, a sociological community. Right. Are, you know, there are about three or 4,000 string theorists internationally, and they share a common language. They all begin with the language of general relativity and quantum theory, and they have a very powerful set of mathematical tools that can combine those two sets of mathematical tools together. And they're all trained in that. They've all got PhDs in that. So they share a common language, and they share a common set of goals, and they share a common vision of what it is they're even trying to do. Whereas the outsider tends to exist in a universe of one. <laughs> yeah. The only quality that many outsiders share is their uniqueness. You know, they don't even often agree on what are the common basic principles of reality. They don't even often agree on what are the common principles on which science by which science ought to be operating. They don't even often agree on what the goal is. So it's very difficult for them to come to any consensus on anything. And in fact, when you read their mission statement in their Natural Philosophy of Alliances um, website, they admit this up front. They admit that, the, that they often have very little common, except a common understanding that the mainstream is wrong. And it is true that they are often united by their absolute belief that the mainstream is wrong than by any as it were, positive views about what is right. Uh, Margaret, are there any real generalizations you can make about the kind of people uh, who become outsider scientists, as you call them, who, who, who spend a lot of time working up alternative theories of the universe? You know, I've generally found that any generalization you make about these people is generally wrong. They come from all walks of life. Engineers make up the biggest category of them. I've met people who, uh, one guy who was a retired California Supreme Court judge. I've met people who are architects, artists, doctors, people who are trained in chemistry, physics, biology, but also people who are backyard you know, car dealers and, in Jim Carter's case, a trailer park owner. And they come from across the whole socioeconomic spectrum. There are people who are really rich. There are people who are really poor. A lot of people think that they're all, you know, as it were, loners out in the woods, and that's not necessarily true. The one thing that is a generalization is that almost all of them are men. There are a few women dreaming up theories of um, alternative theories of space and time, but mostly they're men. So, so what is it, do you think, about the, the male psyche? I, I thought a lot about that during the writing of my book, um, and here's what I came to conclude. I think it's because these physics outsiders... They tend to be sort of the tinkerer type. A lot of their theories are highly mechanical. They look at the universe as a machine. A lot of them are good with machines. You know, if, if they're not actual engineers, they're sort of backyard engineers. They fix cars, they fix boats, they fix machines. And they look at the universe as a machine, and they believe that they can look under the hood of the universe and figure out how it works. Mm -hmm. And in our society, there just aren't that many women um, who, who are of the tinkerer type, or at least not of that machinic tinkering type. So I think it sort of makes sense that there aren't actually a lot of women doing this. Um, I wanted to mention that I think you discovered in your research that you weren't the first person to have gone deeply into this subject and started to try to understand these people and also catalog the kinds of theories we're talking about. There was before you uh, Augustus de Morgan, uh, an English mathematician who... Uh, wrote a book that was published posthumously, uh, I think in 1872, 
with the wonderful title, A Budget of Paradoxes. Yes, De Morgan was sort of the, um, as it were, the guiding spirit who hovered over the creation of my book. <laughs> he, De Morgan was a mathematician and logician in the, in the late mid-19th century. And in fact, he invented... Um, he was one of the founders of modern logic on which computing is based. So some of the, the major laws in logic are called De Morgan's laws, and every student of computer science studies those laws. Um, but he he also was uh, um, he wrote widely for the public about science and mathematics. And one of the things he did he he wrote a regular column in the London journal, the Athenaeum, which was primarily a literary and cultural magazine. But he wrote about scientific and mathematical subjects, and he often got sent theories by outsiders, much as I do now. And he wrote about them in his column. And he was he was very very clever and astute in skewering what was wrong with his he called them paradoxes. Um, what was wrong with his paradoxes arguments? But he was always very gentle to the men himself, themselves. He was he was very sympathetic to the plight that they were in because he understood that the time that he was living in was the time when science was becoming professionalised, when it was particularly in physics this new highly arcane mathematical language was taking over, and he understood that it was very difficult for the common person to keep up, and rather than dismiss them as prank as cranks. He actually specifically says in his book that we should not do that, that we should, and that's why he chose the word paradoxers to be a more loving term. And he said we should be on guard against being harsh and critical of these individuals as individuals. And he would not have approved, I think, of the current sort of derogatory terms that are used to apply to these people. But but he did um, at one point, I guess, gently call them squares of the circle, trisectors of the angle, duplicators of the cube, um, constructors of perpetual motion, subverters of gravitation, stagnators of the earth, builders of the universe. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he was referring um, in, in those first three trisectors of the cube, bisectors of the angle. The, the, they're all classical mathematical problems. Yes, that can't be solved. That uh, mathematicians in the late 19th century proved that you could not solve those yes, problems. Yes. It, they had believed to be solvable from the time of the ancient Greeks. And so De Morgan would often get papers from men claiming to have solved those problems, even though in his time it was now known that they couldn't be solved. But um, So he was referring to some classical problems. But yes, I mean, he, De Morgan was very witty, and, he, and his book is, you know, was really quite amusing and entertaining because he was a very witty writer. But at the same time, he was very serious that we should be on guard against just dismissing these people as crackpots. And the other interesting thing about De Morgan is that he he actually had planned to write a companion volume, which would look at the absurdities going on in some of in the mainstream science of his day. Uh-huh. He never got around to writing that book, but 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 in his first book, The Budget of Paradoxes, he does actually discuss some rather bizarre theories that uh, mainstream scientists have had, including, in his view, the ridiculous notion that had been pushed um, by some people um, in the 17th and 18th century that there would be intelligent life on other planets. <laughs> and De Morgan regarded this as a crackpot view, as did a lot of other people um, in his time, because as his point was, it may or may not be true, but there is no way that that is a question that science can answer. And I think that's really interesting because it raises a question that's a very big question in my book, which is what is considered ridiculous at any point in time in science? Certainly. I mean, if we were to go uh, together and pour through 
what's called Archive, you know, A-R-X-I-V, which is a place where uh, scientific papers on subjects such as physics can be published online without peer review. You'll find works by the leading uh, theoretical physicists of the day, and you'll find a lot of other physicists proposing things, um, many of which undoubtedly uh, in the fullness of time will be shown to be wrong, um, uh, some wildly wrong, all smart people, no doubt, all with good backgrounds, but still wrong. But the difference, again, seems to me that the papers in archive mostly are wrong in a certain way. They're wrong in a way that um, I think it was Wolfgang Pauli said of uh, of some theories that they're wrong, and some are not even wrong because they can't even be falsified. They're not rigorous enough to even be sort of uh, put to the test. So is that is that one difference between uh, De Morgan's characters uh, and uh, say a legitimate physicist who who's still incorrect? Well, actually. The philosopher Karl Popper, who put forward the view that what can be regarded, what ought to be regarded as, as legitimate science, is that which can be falsified. Right. If if I've got a theory, you know, I say, you know, the moon is green on Thursdays. Well, we can check that. We can go out. We can all go out on Thursday night and have a look and see if the moon is green. And if I'm wrong, then my theory is wrong. But I've actually put forward a scientific <laughs> theory. Sure. If if I say, you know, the moon might be purple. In a billion years, that's not likely to be much of a scientific theory because we can't test it. But what is interesting about a lot of the outsiders that I study and the ones that De Morgan looked at is that, in fact, they did make direct claims that could be tested. But are they likely to get access to the scientific equipment to test them? Jim Carter, the hero of my book, he makes a very concrete claim about a difference between the way gravity acts under his theory and the way gravity acts under general relativity. An experiment could be done that would test that, but we'd have to do it up on the space shuttle. (laughs) And it's very expensive to send um, experiments up on the space shuttle. So it's very peer-reviewed whose experiments get to go up on the space shuttle. It's very unlikely that Jim Carter, it's completely unlikely that Jim Carter is ever going to get sent up on a space shuttle. So that particular experiment is not going to be done, but it could be done. And a lot of these people have such experiments, and one of their beefs is that they're not going to get access to the particle accelerators and the deep space telescopes so that their ideas are never going to get tested. And that's one of the things that they're pretty annoyed about. Hmm. They say that theoretical physics has become like a sort of a priesthood, that there's this priesthood of people who speak this arcane language, higher mathematics, that's guarding the great um, tools of science and shutting out other people from getting access to these tools. Now, I don't necessarily agree with this claim, but I think it's an interesting claim. And it, it raises the question that for me is interesting, is how do we decide which ideas we go to take seriously and spend the money on testing, and which ideas we're going to ignore? Uh, I'll take the role of defender of establishment science yes. here and say... Well, it has a pretty damn good track record, um, which was just added to a little over a week ago when they did apparently discover the Higgs boson, which is that step by step, they have built this very elaborate structure of of theory that matches the evidence and even predicts the evidence before it happens. And when that happens, when you predict something that's otherwise extremely unlikely, when you make a very precise prediction, it's hard not to say, wow, this thing is is on to something. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, no, I, I mean, I agree. I think we've, you know, uh, I mean, uh, the, the thing 
that I think is interesting about this is that it's not a clear-cut spectrum of there's the insiders and there's the outsiders. Right. That there is a, what I came to believe writing this book is that I think what matters most about the argument I'm making is, is not about the difference between Stephen Hawking and, say, Jim Carter, my hero, who's coming across the theory of the universe, you know, literally in his backyard in Enumclaw, Washington, but the fact that there is a whole spectrum. So, for instance, there are mainstream theoretical physicists who are trying to unify quantum mechanics and gravity who completely disagree with string theory because they have different views. Right. The most famous one is a, is, is a kind of theory called loop quantum gravity, which was um, one of the great leaders of that is a man of great physicist called Lee Smolin. Now, Dr. Smolin has written several books articulating why he thinks string theory is wrong and how he thinks that other theories, like loop quantum gravity that he um, promulgates, are pushed out of mainstream physics testing because the string theorists are commanding all the instruments at the moment. And then there are people who've got further wild ideas. So there's this spectrum. There are sort of straightforward outsiders who are in their trailer parks doing it totally on their own. And then you've got insider-outsiders like Dr. Smolin, who operate who operate in a class where they have they definitely have colleagues they definitely have colleagues in the in the uh, theoretical physics mainstream, but they're not as mainstream as um, string theory, which is our current leading paradigm. Exactly, and and, and they are sometimes dismissed um, in in pretty brutal terms. I've heard Lee Smolin's work um, uh, criticized pretty strongly by some other physicists. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I want to get to the guy we keep referring to as your hero, Jim Carter. I don't want to leave him out of this because he is your quintessential outsider scientist. He is the founder and sole member, I think, of the Absolute Motion Institute. That's right. Yeah. He lives up on the Green River Gorge in, in Washington in a beautiful location um, that you visited. You got to know him well. You've made a, a documentary film about him. You write about him quite a bit in your book, and I can t- completely see why. He's a remarkable guy. Uh, he's the kind of guy I think a lot of us have run across in our lives who seems to be able to do almost anything he puts his mind to, or at least is willing to put his mind to, to really difficult tasks and, and, and succeed. He's kind of a self-made man. Uh, he's invented things. He, Of course, he built his own house. Um, he's been off on some schemes that, that failed and seemed pretty wild, like hunting a... a uh, a legendary meteor in the uh, mountains of Oregon or attempting to do some gold mining in a, a spot where he never found the gold but worked his butt off. On the other hand, he, he did invent a very successful like marine salvage device. What's it called? The lift bag. The lift bag. These are bags you can attach to things underwater and inflate and pull those things to the surface, including uh, sunken ships <laughs> and boats. <laughs> People in our area where I'm broadcasting are probably familiar with those things because they've been used to raise boats around here. And in addition to all that stuff um, and many, many other things, um, he has this huge theory that sort of reinvents physics from the ground up called circlon synchronicity, right? Can you, and I, you're going to have to be really brief about this, Margaret. I know it's going to be hard, but can you give us like the yes. one-minute description of circlon Synchronicity? Yes. Well, basically, Jim, Jim believes that all matter is made up of these ring-shaped particles that he calls circlons. And so uh, 
electrons and protons and neutrons, all the basic subatomic particles that we know of are actually, according to his theory, these ring-shaped particles that are actually, when you look closer, are made out of little springs. And he believes that these little ring-shaped particles link together like a kind of subatomic chain mail and that that is, makes up all the matter. And he has developed through this an alternative explanation for the periodic table. These little ring-shaped particles fit together in a very particular pattern that happens to mirror the pattern of the periodic table. And he discovered that when he was working as an abalone diver out on Catalina in about 1971. And he realized that he had discovered in his own mind the secret of matter. And at the same time, he also had been working on a theory of gravity. And he came to believe that that gravity is simply um, the the result of the fact that all matter is expanding. Hmm. Now, as goofy as that might sound to some people, um, it's very systematic, as you show in your book. Uh, he's got these wonderful scientific illustrations of his periodic table uh, of these elements consisting of these circlons and the way they combine in different ways to create the characteristics of the elements and then the chemistry that, that grows out of that. Um, and that accords, he thinks, accords with the, the evidence uh, from particle physics and all of that. You know, it's not the work of an idiot at all. Uh, and the illustrations are awesome. I mean, if I had chanced upon them, I would definitely think they were from a legitimate scientific text. Um, but on the other hand, why, I have to ask, why does he need to reinvent all of physics? Um, why not accept quarks and, you know, electrons and photons uh, as they're currently described? Why rebuild it ultimately to explain the same phenomena? Yes, and that is the big question that I think matters here. Why are these people doing it? That was the question I set out to answer when I began this book. What drives these people? What drives a man in a trailer park to think, to believe he can come up with his own theory of physics and why would he bother to do it? Well, I came to believe in writing this book that the reason is that these people, like Jim, they read contemporary science in places like Scientific American and Discover. They find they can't understand it. It literally comes across as nonsense to them. They read about general relativity and its ideas of this space-time matrix or space-time fabric. They read about quantum mechanics with these bizarre ideas about particles that are simultaneously particles and waves, that there's this uncertainty principle. It's very difficult to comprehend contemporary physics if you haven't gone and studied it and studied the higher mathematics that goes along with it. And they basically say the following. They say, we believe the universe speaks a language that the common man can understand. We believe that nature has an order that is inherently available to our senses and that doesn't need to be, as it were, mediated through an arcane, almost um, abstruse, private language. Now, I don't necessarily agree with this claim of theirs, but I think it's a very interesting one to consider. The dilemma we have in our society at the moment is that we've articulated a picture of the universe, which is very powerful, but 99% of our population can't understand it. Yeah, now, I, like you, have attended you know, conferences on string theory and sat through lectures that I didn't understand a jot of. But my temperament is such that I immediately chalked it up to my own ignorance. I mean, uh, these guys have been at it quite a bit longer than I have. They are building on the, on the work of other people who were at it for quite a long time. So collectively they represent 
untold thousands and thousands of hours of intellectual work building one step at a time this thing. And the fact that I am not on the thousandth floor like they are, that I'm down at the ground floor, doesn't surprise me at all. But these outsider guys like Jim, do they tend to be these people who have incredible self-confidence? I can do anything myself. I can build my own ship. I can I can uh, design my own house. I can extract gold from a place that is almost impossibly remote and uh, no one else has had any success mining at all, in the case of Jim Carter. I mean, is, is that part of it? Is it just this amazing sense of, of, of self-reliance? That certainly is one characteristic. They're not all like Jim. They're not all nearly as self-confident as Jim. But they're making a claim that I think is actually more important than ego, because I agree with you. I'm happy to accept that other people know more <laughs> than me about the theory of the universe. Um, but I, I think the universe is a very special thing. Um, it's our home. It's where we live. It's it's the wider cosmological context in which we have to understand ourselves as human beings. I think there's enormous sanity to the claim that if this is our cosmological home, we ought to be able to understand it. And describing our cosmological home used to be the role of myth systems and then of religion. And so, cosmologically speaking, all, all societies have had some vision of a cosmos in which they live, in which, which is the framework for, for human beingness. Um, and we've got a very odd point in our society in Western history at the moment where we've articulated this incredibly complex, beautiful cosmology but it's very complex and very inaccessible to many people. And I think the, thing that, the one quality that really unites the outsiders is not so much their self-confidence, but the fact that they really do believe that their cosmological home is something that they should feel comfortable within. And one, there's a famous scientist, um, Philip Kaufman, who's made, who's, who wrote a book called At Home in the Universe, and basically what he says in that book, among other things, is that the role of science is to help us to feel at home in our universe. And lots of scientists have taken up this cry since Kaufman's book. And if that is the case, if it is the role of science, if, if one of the roles of science is to help us be at home in the universe, then the question is who gets to feel at home in the universe of general relativity and quantum mechanics and now string theory? Um. What's your feeling personally about your home in the universe? I mean, when I look at myself, I think I'm perfectly fine to live in a universe that is, to me, always going to be somewhat mysterious. I don't know why, but that even seems comforting to me. I think, I think this is a real dilemma. I mean, I went to university and studied physics because I wanted to feel that I understood my cosmological home. I was motivated by exactly that phenomena a desire to, to know the world in which I lived. Um, and my interest in this subject now is, is driven largely on a philosophical premise that, that I think all of the theories that physicists articulate are probably models for our time. It's very unlikely, I suspect, that much of what we know today we will still talk about it in the same way in 500 years' time as we talk about it today. 
just as the context in which we talk about physics today is very different from what it was in Galileo and Newton's time. I think it'll be very different again in 500 years. So I think that each age is called upon to, as it were, understand the universe for itself in its own way. I don't know if I believe in the idea of an ultimate theory of the universe anymore. I think I used to when I was a physics student, but I don't think I actually believe in that idea anymore. And therefore, I do think we have a dilemma because I think I do actually agree with Stuart Kaufman that one of the roles of science is to make us feel at home or to help us to feel at home in the universe. But I think that therefore does create an enormous problem for the majority of our population who are not going to go to university and study physics, who are not going to have the degrees in mathematics that would enable them to study, to understand really things like string theory. It it really troubles me that science has reached a pitch of success, which is instrumentally amazing, that it can predict things like the Higgs boson, but it leaves most of us sort of cosmologically adrift (laughs) <laughs> and I actually think this is a this is a serious sociological problem of our time, and that is why I wanted to write my book. Yeah, it was thought, and I think you point this out in your book, that the progress of science was such that some people might have predicted back in the uh, post-Sputnik science boom that we were all going to become scientifically literate, that superstition was going to be vanquished, and a completely rational society was going to evolve. And instead, we've seen an anti-science backlash. I mean, look at the uh, degree to which people don't take scientists seriously on things like, at least in the U.S., on climate change, I say many people, on evolution. And more and more, people are treating scientists as though they're just politicians uh, whose claims, you know, needn't be taken seriously. Uh, And on the other hand, we have seen kind of, at least in America, it seems to me, a a growth in in more fundamentalist strains of Christianity, maybe in other religions as well. So science hasn't really triumphed sociologically in the way people thought it would. Yes. One of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because I think there is a sociological backlash going on against science in our society, which is epitomized by the creationists. And I think one of the reasons why it's going on is that I think many people, they hear the articulations of reality that scientists espouse and they say that world literally doesn't make sense to me. I don't accept that that's the way the world works because I literally cannot make head or tail of what you are saying. And therefore they reject the totality of science or at least large parts of it. To to what extent though is this limited to some societies and not others? I mean, the waning confidence in science that you see in the U.S. isn't really reflected in Europe, is it, Western Europe? I mean, most people believe in evolution, uh, climate change, and other, um, you know, scientific findings. Yes. Um, So maybe it's a matter of education and culture? Well, I think it's definitely in part to do with that. But I think there's another thing that is going on. Here in the States, and I I say this as someone who is not brought up here, I was brought up in Australia, it has become a very great sort of, as it were, epistemological battle. You have the two major groups you have claiming that we have the truth, capital T, truth, is scientists on the one hand, particularly physicists, and religious believers on the other hand. And instead of people saying, okay, 
can we have some dialogue and talk about how a scientific worldview and a religious worldview might be compatible? There's just this heated battle. It's the red team versus the blue team. You've got to be with one team or the other. You can't even begin to have foots in both camps. And in Europe, you just don't have so much of a public battle going on between scientists and Christians. You have plenty of people who are Christians, who are believers in science as well. So I think one of the issues that happens here is that it is pitched as you must go with one belief system or the other. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think this is a problem. And, and it's one of the things when you talk to outsiders and indeed inside of physicists, it's the same thing. My vision of physics is right. Your vision of physics is wrong. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to get at in my book is that we need, at all levels of our discussion about science, to have a much more nuanced discussion. What is a scientific theory? What is truth? What stands up to scrutiny? What do you even mean by scrutiny? Who is this for? How is it articulated to them? What ultimately is the purpose of science in our society? You have a wonderful uh, sentence in your book. You're talking about uh, physics theories of the origins of the universe, and you say, Theories of origination are expressions of faith grounded in beliefs about what constitutes a reasonable premise of a starting point. I love that it's seldom pointed out that in physics theories of the beginning that you have to agree, first of all, what you consider to be a beginning. Uh, and that is an act of faith in some ways, or an act of consensus, right? So is the beginning the quantum fields that might have existed before the Big Bang? Would you call that the absolute beginning, uh, when they coalesced into ultimately into uh, energy and matter and space and time? Uh, why is that the beginning? You have to agree to that, and that is in some ways, you know, I could make the, the argument, I think you're, you're suggesting the argument, that that's really outside the... Um, the domain uh, of science, to say what is the beginning. Yes, I, I agree with that. One of the big debates going on in theoretical physics, in mainstream theoretical physics day, today, is what is a reasonable premise for a starting point? And that is why we now have some people saying, well, we can't agree on one starting point, so let's have all possible starting points in a way, which is leading to one of the things that's leading to this what we call multiverse theory, which is that actually there isn't just one starting point for one universe. There's any possible version of the mathematical equations that we can come up with, these 10 to the 500 versions of string theory, that each one of them represents not only a possible universe, but an actual universe, so that there's effectively an infinite or quasi-infinite array of universes, each which have their own starting point. (laughs) Now, you know, that's one solution as it were. But there is a a growing number of physicists who say, look, this is madness. (laughs) We we have to have a starting point. We live in a universe. To them, it makes no sense to say that anything we can imagine through the equations is legitimate. So this is a fundamental philosophical premise that's being debated in our time within the mainstream. Do we, what do we agree on, actually, even is the philosophical principles on which we were starting? Like, is it okay to say that there are multiple universes which we could probably, in theory, never even get evidence for, but just because the equations allow them? 
is that is that philosophical madness or is it is it reason? So we're at a point where even the mainstream theorists themselves cannot agree on what is madness versus <laughs> legitimate argument. Well, when when people argue about a theory like that being ungainly or ugly or madness, what they're really arguing, I think, is taste. I mean, there there is nothing written into the, the, the rules of logic that um, a theory that says there are 500, I mean, 10 to the 500 possible universes and they all coexist, is any worse than a theory that says it all began in a single point, there's one universe, it's all fully unified, and uh, I can explain it to you in half an hour. There is no reason why a complicated, mind-boggling theory couldn't be better than a simple theory. But we love simplicity and unity, which are these values that run through scientific explanation, right? So I would almost amend your, uh, widen your, your statement about theories of origination to say, theories are expressions of faith grounded in beliefs about what constitutes a reasonable theory. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, in the Western world, you know, one of the main premises of, of modern Western science goes back to the 14th century with William of Ockham, who has the concept of Ockham's race, right, right. that the simplest theory should be the one that we go with. Well, why? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and most scientists for 500, 600 years have agreed with that principle, or at least most physicists have. But with string theory now, where we have this notion that there might be this multiverse of really an infinite number of universes in which all possible combinations of the laws of physics are playing out somewhere, um, that is completely against Occam's razor. And a number of physicists have made that point. Well, why should we believe Occam's razor? That's just an aesthetic principle. Maybe simplicity isn't the, the, the founding principle of the universe. You have an um, epigraph that begins your book from Michel Foucault, the French philosopher. Uh, I'd like to quote it. I dream of a new age of curiosity. We have the technical means for it. The desire is there. The things to be known are infinite. The people who can employ themselves at this task exist. Why do we suffer from too little, from channels that are too narrow, skimpy, quasi-monopolistic, insufficient? There is no point in adopting a protectionist attitude to prevent bad information from invading and suffocating the good. Rather, we must multiply the paths and possibility of comings and goings. Um, a d democratic idea of knowledge that uh, we should be less exclusive, that we should loosen the standards maybe uh, and allow more ideas into the fold. Is that your view? Well, I, I use that that Foucault quote at the beginning of my book to be rather provocative. Um, let me be point blank about this. I don't believe that we should allow the Jim Carters or the Natural Philosophy Alliance of this world into Harvard and Princeton and Stanford physics courses. I'm not proposing that these people should be taught in universities, nor am I proposing that they should be considered for the Nobel Prize. I don't. Um, but I do think that it's worthwhile considering what are alternative ways of conceiving of ourselves in a wider cosmological scheme. Physics is my love, and, and I happen to you know, accept the phys most physics accounts of the universe in some way. But I do believe that they leave out whole dimensions of the quality of beingness that are important to us. You can't find love in the equations of quantum mechanics. 
you can't find fear and jealousy in equations of general relativity. You find a form of beauty. But I think that we as human beings do need to have, as it were, a more whole vision of ourselves in a cosmological scheme. And therefore, I think Foucault is right that we do, as it were, need to open up our channels of understanding and in some sense be more epistemologically multifaceted in our thinking. Where do we draw the line? I think that's for every human being to decide for themselves. What is it that you accept as reasonable um, and interesting to you? And for me personally, I'm not really interested in whether Jim Carter's theory of the universe is true. I'm interested that it is a human expression in which Jim has built for himself a system in which he feels at home in the universe he's created. And I think that's a fundamentally beautiful and sane thing to have done. I wish I had a universe that I felt so much at home in as Jim Carter feels in his. On the other hand, when um, it comes to building the plane that's going to carry you, let's say, over the Atlantic, would you rather have a uh, a mainstream engineer and scientist uh, working on it or an alternative oh, absolutely. scientist? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we need, to, we need to have things that work. And uh, to that end, we do, we do actually need to have physics courses taught in universities. And I believe in Maxwell's equations. I believe in <laughs> equations of general relativity and um, quantum mechanics. But I think the need to feel at home in the universe is a fundamental human drive. And I think that we do need to consider how people can feel at home in a universe described by science. And therefore, we need to discuss what, as it were, in some sense, are the, not only the great achievements of the scientific descriptions of the world, but what are their limitations? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, in, in doing the, the radio show that I do, um, people who tune in often know that we'll get deep into a scientific subject like general relativity or particle physics. And naturally, we can't possibly, I can't possibly, fully understand these things on the basis of a couple of hours with a physicist. But... I can begin to grasp the rough outlines. Mm. And what I tend to take away, and I think some of my listeners do, is, uh, you know, a real exhilaration at what our fellow human beings have been able to accomplish. Um, yes. And, and that's, a, that's a very positive sensation, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the great achievements of, of human society, or certainly of Western society, is the general theory of relativity. It's, um, it's incredibly beautiful for most physicists. It's, it's really an aesthetic triumph that rates up there with the great works of Renaissance art. <laughs> but it also works. Um, mm-hmm. you know, GPS satellites use the corrections, of not only from special relativity, but from general relativity, to work out exactly where they are in relation to one another and therefore to enable us to determine exactly where we are on Earth. Without the equation of special and general relativity, we would not be able to have GPS satellites working to you know, a metre of accuracy on the surface of our Earth. That's an incredible technological achievement that has been... Um, that would not be possible without these very high-blown, high-theoretical mathematical equations. That is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary instrumental success and it's an extraordinary aesthetic success. That said, G- 
general relativity tells us that we live in a space, a four-dimensional space-time matrix. How do we understand ourselves as humans? As hu- and and I, when I say as humans, I mean as humans with emotions, as people who love and hate and fear and feel joy and gratitude. How is the subjective self embedded in the four-dimensional space-time <laughs> matrix of relativity? And that is a question that nobody currently knows how to answer. Uh, you might be looking for love in the wrong place, Margaret. <laughs> Say, we've only talked about your book, uh, Physics on the Fringe, and that's just one part of what you do. You, in fact, have your own institute in Los Angeles? Yes. Um, in my work as a science writer, I started a little organization called the Institute for Figuring. And the whole point of the institute is to put on exhibitions and events and lectures with scientists and mathematicians and engineers to try to show people the incredible um, beauty and aesthetic power of science and mathematics. Uh Aha. And what's showing now? Well, we've just opened, having done exhibitions all over the world, uh, we have just started a space of our own. It's in the Chinatown district of Los Angeles, and currently we have on an exhibition, which is a visual version of my book. It shows um, a lot of outside of physics theories, one like Jim Carter's, that are you know have animations and beautiful diagrams and models that they've built. So the, the point of this exhibition is to be a visual version of my book. But we also have on a couple of smaller exhibitions that are more straightforward. So we have one that is about the mathematics of hyperbolic geometry. You can make hyperbolic uh, surfaces with all kinds of different um, material principles like crocheting or make them out of paper. And so it's about the the non-Euclidean mathematics that underlies things like general relativity. Wow. Where can our listeners find out more? Uh, What's your website? Our website is theiff.org. So it's T-H-E-I-F-F dot O-R-G. The Institute for Figuring. Yeah. Well, Margaret, I can only say in response to this interview, let's go figure, huh? <laughs> let's go figure, yes. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you for a lovely interview. Margaret Wertheim is the founder of the Institute for Figuring and author of Physics on the Fringe, Smoke Rings, Circlons, and Alternative Theories of Everything. This has been the 7th Avenue Project on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, your host. I'll see you next week. <laughs>